Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. On today's episode, I'm talking with Yale News College Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies, Dr. Matthew Snyder Meyerson. Today, we're talking about some recent research Dr. Meyerson did looking at how cli-fi, or if you're not familiar with that term, climate science fiction can actually influence a reader's behavior. If you recall, I had on literary expert whose specialty is cli-fi, Dr. Amy Brady, come on the podcast. It's been a while since Amy was on, but I invited her to be my co-host for this episode because I knew she'd have a lot of great questions for Matt, and she did. Also, as a bonus for this episode, I interview Laura Hesse Fisher, the host of the new podcast at MIT called Today I Learn Climate. This is a cool, informative new climate podcast, and Laura shares what it's all about. I love that I'm getting to interview all these climate podcasters. It's a great treat for me. Okay, let's jump right in and hear from Dr. Matthew Snyder Meyerson and Dr. Amy Brady. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. On today's episode, I am very excited to be hosting Dr. Matthew Snyder Meyerson, Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at Yale and NUS College, and Amy Brady, who's Deputy Publisher of Guernica Magazine and Senior Editor of the Chicago Review of Books, where she also writes a monthly column about how contemporary literature is addressing climate change. Hey, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Great to be speaking with you. Okay, I just want to give a little bit of background on this episode for my listeners. Actually, Amy's coming on. They probably recognize that name. She's been on before talking about climate science fiction, and she's come on, and she's going to be my co-host because we heard about a study that Matthew did, and we wanted him to come on. We were going to talk about it. So Amy's going to be in here asking some of these questions toward Matt. We're kind of tag-teaming this, and so that that's what's going on. So Matt, you are a professor at Yale and, and U.S., but you're actually based in Singapore, right? That's true. I'm coming to you from Singapore. It was it was an issue of like coordinating our schedules to do this. It's always a challenge. So just a little bit of background kind of before we dig into that article. So Matt, so what areas do you focus on? I study cultural dynamics of climate change, um, and that includes focusing on um, narratives, storytelling, including literature, which is known as climate fiction or cli-fi. Okay, so we're having you on today based on a, a recent article that you published, "The Influence of Climate Fiction." an empirical survey of readers. So we're going to ask you a bunch of questions on that, but can you kind of give just a brief summary of what that article was all about? And I guess a little bit of history of why you decided to write that particular article. Sure. So as, as Amy talked about um, when she was on previously, climate fiction or cli-fi, some people refer to it as a growing genre or category of literature. And so this is literature uh, that sort of sent, that um, features climate change in its plot. Climate change is almost a character in these novels. And 10 years ago, this was um, pretty niche, sort of marginal science fiction stuff. And now it's um, increasingly central. So there's a lot of novels that some of your readers might be familiar with, people like Barbara Kinsolver, Kim Stanley Robinson, Ian McEwen, and lots of other folks. So this is a growing field of literature that helps people imagine climate change in the future and the present. And so there's been a lot of academic and, and uh, sort of professional criticism about climate fiction, often speculating about what it does to readers, because the idea is that climate fiction helps people um, imagine the future and helps make um, climate change more vivid and more real, and thus can potentially help us respond to it in one way or another. To date, a lot of that sort of eco-political focus has 
has been speculative. People have sort of just been hypothesizing about what it does. I decided it was a good idea to actually get some data. Um, so I surveyed 180 readers of climate fiction of 19 different novels to get a sense of how it moved them um, emotionally, psychologically, and then eventually behaviorally. Okay, I'm going to let Amy jump in in a second here, but I'm just I, I'm just curious. It seems like it's such a, a new and emerging genre, and you know, it's a type of science fiction. But what does it really take for, I guess, academic interest in, in, in a type of writing like this? I mean, it, did it take a certain you know number of novels? But why all of a sudden this academic interest? Well, I think I've always you know I've I started out by being interested in social justice, um, and then around ten years ago when I started learning more about climate change. I realized that all the things that I care about, um, LGBTQ rights, egalitarianism, economic justice, um, we're going to be deeply impacted by climate change. And obviously, there's a lot of different ways that one can respond to climate change, technological adaptation, urbanization, architecture, obviously policy. Um, but for me, climate change is also a cultural issue. Um, and so if, if we're going to actually transition to a society that responds to climate change and survives and even thrives, um, then I think culture has to be part of it. And storytelling is really at the heart of culture. So that's why I became interested in uh, in climate fiction, as well as just a longstanding love for, for science fiction and for literature in general. First thing I wanted to say, Matthew, is that what I so appreciated about this study is that you brought some empirical evidence to bear on things that have long to me and other readers of climate fiction and to a lot of cli-fi novels that I interview have always felt like anecdotal truths. Mm -hmm. And it's so nice to see some empirical evidence backing up uh, some of these things that I think we've long felt in our gut and turn out to uh, actually seem to to be rooted in reality. So uh, it was a real pleasure to read this study. Thanks. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this study, and I would love to hear some of your thoughts on, was how you found that readers responded differently depending on the type of climate fiction that they were reading. And I don't necessarily mean genre differences. Um, Cli-fi spans all types of genres, you know, literary realism, science fiction, weird fiction, but different cli-fi in terms of whether it has a more dystopian focus or uh, a more hopeful focus. It sounds like readers responded differently to those things. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's definitely accurate. Um, and if I make a sort of generalization for readers that aren't super familiar with climate fiction, most of it has been dystopic. So most of it has been uh, sort of focused on destroyed, denatured futures, um, you know, set decades or even centuries into the future. And generally, I think authors do this um, not just because, you know, it can be fun to picture a dystopia, but because they imagine that by sort of presenting a cautionary fable, they will push readers to sort of recognize you know, the very dangerous, perilous trajectory that we're on and hopefully take action in the present. So this has been the sort of logic of a lot of um, authors of science fiction, people like Paolo Bacigalupi and others. And they sort of talk about this in interviews and in, in uh, nonfiction articles that they've written. So what I found is that, you know, dystopias can have that effect. But for a lot of people, um, they come, they sort of lead uh, readers to associate climate fiction with very negative emotions. And uh, this makes sense, you know, climate change, it's hard to sort of portray it in a positive way. But a lot of the, the literature and environmental communications, the field of environmental communications that I'm drawing on, notes that that can actually be counterproductive to, to getting people to engage with climate change. If you lead people to associate something with really negative emotions, it sort of makes sense that they might avoid it in the future. 
And so that's what I found is that readers tend to associate a lot of these novels that I tested with really, really negative emotions. They use words like helpless, uh, incredibly sad, guilty, scared, angry, et cetera. I think this, these emotions will probably not be uh, that unfamiliar to most listeners of this podcast, but it's not necessarily all that effective if you want to get people to engage, especially if they feel like they've read this novel before, they've seen that movie before, or they've heard this story before. I guess how I see it is the kind of person that's going to read Cli-Fi in the first place might have that negative view. And does that come out in the article? How, how do you kind of factor that in? I guess what, what they're getting out of this kind of reading. Yeah. So that's another thing that I wanted to focus on because it's interesting to talk about literature in the abstract about what it does. But of course, some people pick up particular books um, or watch particular movies and some people don't. So the question is, um, you know, who gets exposed to these uh, narratives? I'm focusing on literature, but one could easily do the same thing um, with film. Um, and so what I found is that they tend to these novels tend to find readers who are already interested in the subject, which makes some sense. You know, if you have, see climate fiction in the description of a novel on Amazon or, in a, you know, in a blurb on the back of a book in a bookstore, if you don't like climate change, if you're not interested in it or want to learn more about it, you're probably not going to read the novel. And so this is sort of one of my, you know, I, I tried to, to think of this literature in terms of making potential recommendations to authors because I'm a critic, but I'm also an activist. And I'm doing this not because I find climate change fascinating, but because I want us to respond to it. And so I do think there's an interesting element where a lot of authors are sort of referring um, to their novels as climate fiction or environmental fiction. But that might actually not be that useful because uh, that, that that means that you're not going to reach the people that may need to hear it the most which is the people that are sort of a little bit worried about climate change, but perhaps don't recognize the full magnitude. So I'd love to follow up with that, Matthew, because one of the more interesting things for me also in this study was how you broke down readers' reactions or responses to climate change along a spectrum. It wasn't just people who were concerned about it or not. It were uh, You broke it down in terms of people who are kind of concerned or very concerned or alarmed. And what I thought was really interesting was how, yes, it was more people who had kind of a moderate to concerned view that responded uh, most positively to climate fiction, but that even those people did seem to move incrementally along that spectrum towards being more concerned or too alarmed. So, even if we're not reaching, uh, we, like we're the authors, even if climate fiction aren't reaching the people who, you know, be all the way down to the denial part of the spectrum, it seems like it's having some sort of positive effect. Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, I think when I'm doing an, the sort of more subtle analysis that you're describing, you know, I think one of the one of the really sad things about the climate denialism that's happened in the U.S. over the last 10 to 15 years is that it's really sort of um, stunted our ability to analyze climate change. And so we tend to use these categories like believers um, or skeptics or deniers. Um, but of course, there's so many kinds of believers. Of course, climate change isn't a, isn't a faith. It's a, it's a fact. So uh, when I'm doing this analysis, I'm using the, the um, Yale program and climate change communications, Six Americas, which some of your readers, uh, listeners are probably familiar with. And this sort of separates um, Americans into six categories as opposed to two or three the alarmed, the concerned, the cautious, the disengaged, the doubtful, and the dismissive. And so I do argue that it can sort of nudge people over a little bit. Perhaps you're concerned, and then you read a novel about a, a really terrible future, and you become alarmed. And also, perhaps you become, um, you're already alarmed, but all of a sudden, this is kind of filling in the gaps. 
because, of course, the future is kind of a, a distant country. Most of us don't really know how to picture it. And so if we don't have a lot of narratives that are filling in our idea of what the future is, we're probably going to imagine that it's going to be much like the present. And so I would argue that, you know, climate fiction might seem like a marginal niche thing. Um, but if you think of all the different fictional visions of the future, uh, whether they're disaster films or science fiction films or or novels or even ads, it really affects the way that we think about the future and it affects, therefore, the actions that we take in the present. You mentioned the gaps, how climate fiction can fill in the gaps. Something mm. that was striking that came out of the study for me is how even among people who already are concerned about climate change, climate fiction can make them visualize or to really feel consequences of climate change that they may not have otherwise felt. Um, there was an example about someone caring more about sea creatures, for example. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we think climate change is something that is so vast. There are so many elements of it. And it's easy to just focus on some of the big things, extreme weather events, um, sea level rise. Um, but there are so many second and third order consequences, whether it's um, environmental injustice or whether it's the sixth extinction of, of non-human animals. And so it does help fill in those gaps, um, which I was sort of, you know, pleased to surprise, pleased to see as somebody who really enjoys reading this kind of literature. But I would also add that, you know, in some ways, this kind of literature makes sense because climate change is a fundamentally science fictional enterprise, you know, because of the, the gap in emissions and consequences. It means that when we're talking about climate change, we're talking not just about the present and what's happening now, but about the future. And so that's almost it, it does make sense that the world that we're living in is sort of more and more resembling speculative fiction. My quite and just <laughs> bear with me on this one as it, it, it occurred to me as I think about how climate skeptics in a lot of the narratives that they push it's its own climate fiction. And, you know, mm -hmm. why do they do that? And to me, it kind of occurs they, they have a goal. They have this goal of like, you know, they want to undermine the sort of the response to climate change. And you sort of said you have your own kind of reasons why you're trying to do this. And let's address climate change. And I think people who read climate change, most of them probably think it's happening, even though it's based in fiction. But they have that overall goal that there's some basis in reality. And I'm not quite sure what I'm asking here, but I just I, I look at the flip side that the climate skeptics, they have basically developed their own climate fiction. And, you know, they're really just uh, allegiant to it. And I wonder if there's some some lessons to be learned on, on the, I guess, the legitimate cli-fi side. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, probably perhaps the most widely read or one of the most widely read um, climate fiction novels is actually a sort of anti-environmentalist novel. It's Michael Crichton's um, State of Fear, right. um, which portrays uh, scientists creating climate change as a hoax. Uh, it was published in 2004, and as a result of publishing it, Michael Crichton, the author, actually met with George W. Bush as a climate expert. You know, certainly fiction can, can go both ways. And when you're talking about storytelling, uh, you know, everybody is sort of telling a particular story. But to be honest, I think the work that I'm doing isn't really isn't really looking at whether climate fiction can sort of convert or persuade, you know, real deniers, people who are really set in their way and, you know, think climate change is a hoax. Um, I think ultimately, you know, if you get the people that really care to take action, then you can create some really monumental change. Um, and so I think looking at people that are sort of alarmed or concerned about climate change and getting them to, to actually sort of move from awareness to action is pretty important. And so that's one of the things that I'm doing also, because when we talk about art and climate change or art and the environment, whether it's fine art, whether it's film, 
whether it's literature, you know, a lot of the a lot of the discussion really revolves around this idea of awareness. But of course, most people are aware of climate change now. They just feel powerless to take action. And so that's sort of another one of the recommendations that I would forward to to people that are interested in writing uh, climate fiction or doing climate art, which is how do you portray sort of meaningful interventions, right? As opposed to just sort of making people feel um, hopeless, which is another another result that I found. Some people felt, okay, I read this novel, but now I feel even more hopeless than I was before. And that's not necessarily uh, what we're looking for if we care about mitigation or adaptation. I, I love that part of the, the study, Matthew. But what I couldn't help thinking about is when I was working on my own doctoral dissertation and I was studying primarily working class literature coming out of the 1930s. And so many of those novels uh, depicted collective action uh, in some way, you know, whether it was, you know, unionizing or revolt or, you know, or some some kind of uh, collective response to uh, to capitalism um, and to other unfair forces upon them. And some of it was done really beautifully, but a lot of it started to feel more like didactic propaganda than actual art. And so as somebody who also really values literature, I just love to hear your thoughts on about the line that that kind of narrative can walk. Yeah, I know. I think it's such a great point. And I would say that I'm a little bit of an anomaly in the way that I'm thinking about this literature. You know, there's a lot of ways that one can think about climate fiction and, and similarly with some um, films. You know, you can look at it as sort of bearing witness. You can look at it as art. For itself, right? For art for art's sake and sort of look at the, the aesthetic qualities of it, narrative, plot, all that stuff. You know, I think it's so interesting because it is hard to make sort of topical literature that doesn't feel didactic and that doesn't feel dated really quickly. Um, so I, I know I, I loved a lot of those same novels that you're talking about, but it can feel really dated really quickly when things, when things move or it can feel um, like propaganda. And so I don't, I don't think there's any answer for that question. I mean, I think to a certain extent, authors might have to sort of decide, you know, what which what they are more interested in writing. I think sometimes authors sort of want to have it both ways of, you know, writing a sort of timeless work of art, but also having it sort of be contributing socially. And I think that's really hard to pull off of to pull off. My own feeling is that we're at this incredibly perilous moment where we have this sort of uh, window, this this sort of closing window for for action. And so if there's ever been a time where we sort of need socially and politically engaged art that sort of helps point away or helps us sort of experiment with different forms of collective action. I would say that time is now. But on the other hand, if readers see something as sort of propagandizing, it's also hard to lose them. And so it's a really tricky balance, but it's fascinating to watch the way that uh, artists are engaging with it. I want to get this question out before I go back to Amy, but what I thought was really an interesting thing, and ultimately, hopefully, what could be a very useful thing, and I'm going to read a little bit here, is that for this reader and referring to some of the people that were interviewed, climate fiction function as one way to approach a subject that is easily ignored, and then, you know, it, it's connecting readers regardless of various differences, and so it opens a door for people to kind of talk with each other, and even though I think you had people that were actually part of the survey, you know, they were like-minded in a lot of ways, that to me is ultimately something very ho- hopeful as the genre gets more popular. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think those of us who are in uh, the sort of climate community tend to think about it a lot. Uh, We have conversations about climate change. We read articles. We look for news. 
But most people don't do that. You know, most people are, are sort of more concerned about um, daily life and, and maybe other social justice issues or political issues. And so I do think this kind of art can just really function to remind people about this problem and also serve as a kind of cultural artifact that allows people to have a conversation. You know, social scientists have pointed out that there's this kind of spiral of silence around climate change, um, where most people who already believe in it and are concerned about it never have a face-to-face conversation with other human beings about it. And that might have something to do with the prevalence of social media, et cetera. But it's also because it's a hard topic to bring up, right? Any kind of sort of social situation you're in, whether it's breakfast or a party or talking over the water cooler, if people still use water coolers, you know, climate change is never, it's never like, hey, what do you think about that climate change, right? And so I did find that these these novels can serve as a cultural artifact for sort of um, focused conversations, which is something that's really important, even for those who are already believers and are already concerned. All right, Amy. That actually was kind of my question uh, slash comment, which is just about how these novels can spark dialogue among people who might not otherwise be talking about climate change. And that just seems like such a valuable and often overlooked aspect of climate fiction. And I, I hope that people who read this study pick up on it and, you know, perhaps do other types of studies about how these conversations are happening and kind of proliferating, you know, through the public. But I'm curious, Amy, you know, you're, you're writing this Burning Worlds column, which is fantastic. Do you Thank find you. that um, you end up having a lot of conversations with folks? You know, I do. But I, I'll tell you, some of the conversations that I've seen happening um, are the, the, the let me preface this by saying they're fairly niche conversations, but I think this is an interesting consequence nonetheless, is that when I travel to various conferences at you know, universities and other institutions, I start running into novelists that I'd interviewed in the past who, when I first reached out to them to talk about their novel, they were saying things like, wow, I never really thought uh, about how important these themes of climate change really were. I've never even heard the term climate fiction. That's really interesting. And then I run into them a year or two later at these conferences, and suddenly I see them referring to themselves as cli writers and talking to other readers and writers about climate fiction and what mm-hmm. it can do and and how, as you know, Bill Kibben, McKibben once put it, we really need to feel climate fiction or climate change in the gut. And the way to do that is through our art. So to that extent, I, I've seen these conversations happening. Now, I'll say I, I don't really, you know, pick up the phone and talk to my father about novels because he's not really a novel kind of guy. But if that is happening uh, among readers, I think that's very exciting. And um, I, I hope somebody has the means and the interest in doing some sort of official study about that. Mm. Yeah, it would be fascinating to see. Matt, did you happen to reach out to any cli-fi authors, even though they might not have been surveyed? Were, have you reached out to them or have had any of the conversations or just a, a reaction to the work that you've done here? I did have a conversation with an author recently, and it was interesting because he's written about climate fiction a little bit and about the power of literature. But when I asked him about his forthcoming novel, he was very skeptical of its sort of ability to move people. And that might just be a sense of, of um, humility. But I'd be curious to see what authors make of it. I tried to sort of get the, the study out there on social media. Uh, Paolo Bacigalupi, who's a well-known climate fiction author, shared it. I mean, I do think, as coming back to what Amy said before, you know, a lot of authors would 
would not think would not like to think of what they do as um, didactic or sort of propagandistic. Right. I think that that sort of goes against we have this idea of art being sort of art for art's sake versus a kind of instrumental view of art. And a lot of people would sort of resist that idea. So while I am hopeful that that people might take away some some lessons from this, I realize that this might not be the way that most artists want to think about their craft. I think that's really fair. Since I started the column, I have seen a kind of shift in that thinking, whereas climate fiction used to kind of be associated with more didactic science fiction. uh, Mm. I've started seeing authors of all stripes and writing in all genres starting to, you know, to think, think of the term a little bit more seriously in the sense that any kind of effective world building whether it's said in the present or the future, has to reflect climate change. Um, You know, it's it's just it's such a a part of our reality. And I think that a lot of the authors that I speak to would say that it's a crisis of imagination if you can't figure out how to factor that in to their writing. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, you know, we're talking about climate cli-fi as this kind of separate genre. And I think in some ways that's a that's a shame and the way that it obviously draws on the term sci-fi, you know, for some people, sci-fi is fantastic. I love it. I teach it. For some people, it's just a kind of marginal niche thing. Maybe they associate with like Star Trek. The reality is that, you know, at this point in time and definitely moving forward for the next couple of decades, if not centuries, you know, if your work doesn't involve climate fiction, or rather climate change in some way, then it's either fantasy or historical fiction. I mean, that's the that's the world that we live in now, for better or worse. Right. And so exactly. I think people are going to are thinking more and more about how they want to involve climate change, whether it's just as a kind of distant thing in the background or whether it's a central player in their uh, narratives. You know, one of the most well read authors of a work of climate fiction is Barbara Kingsolver, who is mm-hmm. certainly not a science fiction writer. Yeah, absolutely. So, Matt, just I'm curious, what's next? I think we've chatted before and you mentioned that you would like to do some additional research along the same line. So what's up next? Yeah, so I've done a study that should be coming out um, within the next year, and it's focused on one particular novel. It's a novel that Amy actually mentioned when she was on America Adapts before. That's Paolo Bacigalupi's uh, The Water Knife. And I can just sort of describe this to folks a little bit because, you know, probably most folks will not uh, be familiar with it. It's set probably sometime in the 2050s and kind of the near future in which um, all of the southwestern states close their borders amidst a sort of really prolonged and deadly drought. You know, all of Texas is basically um, scattered to the other states. All the Texans are kind of refugees. And it's a it's an interesting novel in terms of the future that it builds the novelist is really good at creating something that is sort of vivid and tactile, a future you can actually sort of taste and feel. You can sort of taste the, the dirt on your tongue. And it's actually a novel that's very focused on climate justice. So as most of your listeners are probably familiar, you know, climate change has really different effects on, on different groups according to, to wealth and nationality and race and gender, etc. So this is a novel that is really trying to get give people a sense of that. And I did a study with, uh, I think, about 80, 80 um, readers to see how it moved them, whether it made them more aware of climate injustice. What I found is that it did, but it also made people potentially fear climate migrants, um, because this is sort of a typical dystopic novel where there's lots of sort of um, border wars, uh, gang wars, etc. And so, you know, this is it's a perfect um, sort of illustration of the way that creating a dystopic future 
can engage people for sure, but not always for the better. I live in Arizona, and I can't believe I haven't read that book yet. I need to get on that. Does the author know that you're up to this? I mean, should they be fascinated with it, what you're doing? Yeah, I'll probably, um, once it goes to I'll probably send it to them. I'll be interested to see what they what they think. And so that's that's one thing. And then I'm hoping to work on some sort of more positive climate fiction at some point. Unfortunately, there are very few of those novels. I think that's something that we really need is novels that show people sort of continuing to to, to struggle politically, to sort of build resilient communities. Um, Kim Stanley Robinson is sort of one of the few authors that's really working in this vein. So I'm hoping to find um, some of those those works and see if they're actually moving people, see if they're inspiring people, activating them politically, because I think that's one of the things that we really need moving forward. Amy, what do you think of Elizabeth Rush? I know she deals in nonfiction, but I think she tries to write, you know, in, in a hopeful manner in a lot of the stories she focuses on. I think Elizabeth Rush is absolutely brilliant. I think that she is uh, an incredibly talented writer who writes with a lot of compassion for her subjects. And, you know, the, the people that she writes about, the, the people whose lives are are at risk because of sea level rise, their lives and their livelihoods. Hard to think of her work as being entirely hopeful, but she writes I just think there's something about the compassion and the sympathy and the empathy with which she writes that is in of itself kind of a hopeful reminder that those emotions are inherently human. And as long as we can hold on to them and enact on them and hopefully, um, you know, use them to catalyze larger actions, that maybe there is some hope for us. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't I haven't read that. read, read her work yet. I've got it actually sitting here on my uh, my bookshelf. I'm looking forward to picking it up soon. But I do think this is, you know, there's a there's a continuum between sort of creative nonfiction or nonfiction and fiction. You know, they're both telling different kinds of stories. Um, and I think stories that can help us with a kind of cultural adaptation are critical at this point, wherever they're coming from. Amy, any sort of last thoughts for Matt before I, I could do a wrap up? I guess maybe just a follow up on that comment, Matthew, about the links between creative nonfiction and fiction, something that comes up again and again in your study is the power of vivid imagery and mm. how it, you know, it really sticks with people and gets them to think about the future in more concrete ways. And I completely agree. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I was attracted to, uh, to fiction about climate change. And I think it's something that some of our greatest creative nonfiction writers like Elizabeth Rush are also really good at. So yeah, that's a great connection. Mm hmm. So any final thoughts, Matt, before we wrap up? No, I think, you know, I, I, I definitely recommend um, listeners get out there and check out some climate fiction, you know, see how it moves you. Maybe even, you know, talk to some of the authors and, and uh, give them feedback, because I think, you know, we're particular people in particular bodies with particular experiences. And so um, talking about these things in the abstract, I think, is fun. But sort of thinking about the way that they're actually moving real flesh and blood people um, is pretty important, too. Okay, Matthew, thank you so much. Amy, thank you for participating. This interview was so much better because you had much better questions. So that was great <laughs> for, for me. But again, thanks, Matt, for coming on. And thanks, Amy. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, thanks for having Hey, Adapters, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Matthew Snyder Meyerson. Up next, I'll be talking with Laura Hesse Fisher from MIT's new podcast, Today I Learn Climate. First off, don't forget about the podcast in the classroom initiative. 
I'll be mentioning this in every episode. We have updated the website. Thanks, Kate. And there are now eight episode discussion guides available. Keep in mind, these just don't have to be available for discussions. You can also sub them in for writing assignments. There's also a new assignment outline that can help students create their own podcast, which can be tailored to any topic, not just climate change. If you're a teacher, instructor, or lead workplace trainings, these resources were developed for you. A link is available in the show notes. Also for professors, we know you are starting to develop material for your next semester. Contact myself or Kate if there's a specific episode of America Daps we haven't developed a guide for, and we can do that. Both our contacts are on the podcast in the classroom page. As I noted earlier, I'm going to St. Augustine for the Keeping History Above Water Conference. It's about sea level rise and historic preservation. I'm being sponsored by the University of Florida to record a podcast and lead a podcasting workshop. Really looking forward to going back to Florida. And while in Florida, I'll be giving a presentation to my former colleagues at the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. I am very excited to see old friends. This is open to the public, so if you are in the area, come on over. My presentation is titled Adaptation, The Greatest Story Never Told. Afterwards, I'll be attending a local ASAP happy hour, which is the American Association of Adaptation Professionals. It's my first time back in Tallahassee since I moved away eight years ago. I'm also headed to New York City in June to do an urban forestry episode with American Forest and the U.S. Forest Service. We'll be highlighting the amazing adaptation work being done in the city. I'm looking forward to that, and I'm also looking forward to connecting with some of my New York listeners when I'm there. America Adapts visits the Big Apple. Okay, Adapters, America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. I've been getting some donations, and I'm greatly appreciative. It allows me to do what I'm doing here to keep bringing adaptation front and center Don't forget, it's a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to a We Did It donate page. It's very simple. Go in there, do recurring donations, one-time donations. Anything is appreciated. Also, if you and your organization are interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know, like I'm doing with this Keeping History Above Water. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue of adaptation. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. I'm also hoping to find a sponsor, I will keep saying this in the months ahead, to the Adaptation Canada 2020 event in Vancouver next year. I know I have a lot of Canadian listeners. Let's see if we can partner to cover that event. Also, if you are interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I've been doing a lot of keynote presentations and they are so much fun. I share stories from the podcast, my own experiences in adaptation. I will talk about adaptation in interesting ways and ways that are going to motivate and inspire you. You can contact me at the website, americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, let's learn what MIT is doing with a new climate podcast. Hey, adapters, I am here with Laura Hesse Fisher, host of the Today I Learn Climate Podcast, or also known as the TIL Climate Podcast. It's a new podcast created by the MIT Environmental Solutions Initiative. Hey, Laura, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Doug. Jess, we're going to jump right in. What is the Today I Learn Climate Podcast? Yeah, so climate change is confusing, right? I mean, we hear all of this jargon. We hear about storms getting more intense. We hear things like carbon pricing, this thing called the Paris Agreement. It's really hard to understand. And so in this podcast, we're hoping to help break down these really complex aspects of climate science and what we're hearing about today in language that we can all understand. Okay, so what's the format? How, how are you structuring the, each episode? 
So I have an interview with, at the moment, it's mostly MIT professors or people who are affiliated with MIT, though I can very much imagine that we're going to expand it beyond that in the future. Um, so I have an interview with them. We have a, we have a topic. We talk for about an hour and then we go through this pretty intense editing process to distill it down into the very key points and into, you know, like defining terms that People kind of the average person doesn't doesn't know that much about and do all the fancy editing and and mixing and things and that's our format. Wow! So you did I didn't I didn't realize that I've listened to several episodes now and so you've got about an hour of content and so yeah I I am doing long form but so are you literally just sitting there with the the professor the guest on it and you just kind of figure out what you want to do and they and they're game to doing this process with you. Yeah, they are. It's amazing. We have some really interesting conversations and we go in all different kinds of directions. So what I try to do is I have a conversation with them first before we actually do the interview, like we have a phone call or something. And we just talk about, you know, the topic and, and then you actually get into it and I have all of my questions, but sometimes you just don't get into them. And I, I try and not necessarily dig deep, but what's interesting is I, when I'm, when I'm talking with these, a lot of times I'm talking with people who aren't used to talking with other people who don't know about their subject area. So, you know, I was talking to somebody, we were interviewing somebody yesterday and I was like, can you explain high pressure and low pressure? And can you explain what the jet stream is? And like, okay, so wait, the polar vortex, it's kind of like a halo that's sitting on top of the earth. And I, you know, I don't know if he's ever really distilled it down into that simple of a language, but it's really important. I mean, for me too, I want to visualize it. I want to get what's going on here. I, you know, my life is busy. Everyone's life is busy. There's only so much information that we're really going to commit to learning about and digesting and taking in, spend time and energy on getting to know. So what we're hoping with Today I Learned Climate is that it's a chance for people who are curious about climate change, but maybe not willing to spend a lot of investment and time into all the intricacies and details to get what they need to know to be informed citizens or decision makers so we can make good, well, decisions about what we're doing in the future. Well, here's some advice to you, and you guys have probably already thought of this. Maybe when you get like 20 or 30 episodes under your belt, doing an episode solely on that process that you just described, sort of describing like how you like what you decide to keep and how you kind of come to, I think that process would probably be fascinating to a lot of people of like how you guys, your team is determining what's the most important, what's the most, I guess, understandable climate information. So just could put that in the back of your head of like future episode, just behind the scenes. I think people could really learn a lot of what's effective communication. That's a great suggestion. Thanks. You've just launched relatively, I mean, it's just been, I think, in the last month or two. What, what's the early response been? It's been great. We, well, it, it's so funny. It's like, you know, my fa- my friends and my family. Well, okay, I'll put it this way. It's, um, first of all, the response has been great. We've been getting some really good feedback. People have said back to me what they've learned from the episode. And for me, that's the biggest win, right? They can put it in their own language and they can have a sense of, of of ownership over the content, you know, like, oh, yeah, I really got that this, this and the other thing. Hearing someone being able to say that back is that's a complete win. That's what we're trying to achieve. Where I was what I was going with before is, you know, I, I'm up to things in my life and I and I share with friends and family about things that I'm doing. But this has been the thing that's been most shared by my friends and family with other people. And 
that also is a signal to me that that this is accessible. This is something that that people are looking for or that they wanted to have exist and that they think that people inside of their networks and their friends might be interested in it, too. And that's really exciting to see. Oh, this is going to be the most fun thing you do, I think, <laughs> with your career. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you right now, you're just as it grows and it's going to it's going to evolve in ways you can't even predict. Hopefully, if you guys stick to it, you know, Emma, you've got different players involved. MIT needs to, I guess, keep supporting what you're doing here. But a year from now, two years from now, if you're still doing this, you're just it, you'll be surprised and you're just going to have a lot of fun with it, which is great. And I think one of the things that will probably happen is you're going to have all these you know, it's MIT, the, it's world-class institution. You're going to have those top-notch professors knocking on your door wanting to get on. I, that's what's going to happen. They're going to be like, oh, <laughs> can, we, can we come on, Laura? And, you know, just a note. And like I said, I've listened to several episodes now, and you've really – I mean, I don't know how many people are working on it, but it, it really sounds great. Top-notch quality, the questions and how you've inserted what the professors are saying. It, it really just sounds – it's NPR-level quality, and so c- congratulations to you guys on that. And do you have like a target audience with the podcast when you kind of started it? And in, in any way, has that target audience changed even after just publishing four or five episodes? Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, thank you for the compliments. I really uh, do a, a shout out to Dave Lashansky, who's our audio producer. He's a he's a genius. So we're so lucky to be able to be working with him. Our team's very small. It's me, Dave, and then we have co-op students that help us do to research and and sit in. So it's it's really a, a small operation here. But you asked about target audience. So someone had had given me this phrase, and I just love it. I call it the climate curious. So. More and more, as we can see, if, if anyone who's listening is familiar with Yale University's climate communication studies, where they look at the something called the Six Americas and how different people across the U.S. think about and, and respond to what they're hearing about around climate change. So are they skeptical? Are they curious? Are they um, are they engaged? Are they worried? Those aren't the right terms, but you get the idea. We're interested in people who maybe aren't climate activists, people who are not necessarily who may or may not be working in this field, but have kind of like they're now hearing about climate change enough that they they're willing to listen for 10 minutes. Right. They, they want to understand a little bit what's going on here. And maybe that could spur some more interest or maybe that could solve a certain problem for them. So. Even though right now our global, our audience is global, um, and we love that, uh, we have been thinking a lot of our examples are based in America. That's where we are. So, but I would say the, the climate curious all around the world, uh, is, is our target audience. Yeah, the, you know, we can just, we could have a longer discussion. We, we'll, maybe we'll have that at some point in the future, but like the Yale climate communications, I, you know, Obviously, it, it's a monumental effort that they did, but I guess I, I've always had a problem with that, you know, with some of the questions are a bit leading, and I always feel that that's a resource created for people like you and me, and it's just, mm. I, I'm not quite sure how deep a dive it's doing on really the rest of America, and, you know, I hope they, they'll evolve and as they go through different survey work. What I'm interested in, like, some of these presidential candidates, they are really starting to focus on climate change and how their communication people are thinking about how they're pitching the climate change issue. And so I think Isley, Isley from Washington state, he's really just running mm-hmm. on it. And so that I think will hopefully be a learning lesson to groups like Yale. It's just like, how are these people in a real practical way pitching the issue of climate change and doing their own internal polling? And uh, I'm hoping those campaigns will share that information because we could learn a lot from it. Doug, I'm really glad that you brought that up because it also speaks to how we design our podcast and and the audience that we're thinking of. 
So as another part of my job, I'm really focused on how you talk about climate change in hydrocarbon producing areas. So places that are their economy is based on fossil fuels because they mine coal or they burn coal or oil or gas or others. And so in the back of my mind, as I'm creating these, I'm always thinking about that audience. So I very much try to, whenever I talk about climate change, whenever I work on areas related to climate change and in developing this podcast, I'm thinking about people who have a different value set or a different context through which they're hearing climate change than those who live on the East Coast, for example. I mean, that's where I live. It's where I work. And as a lot of the communities I'm involved in are here, where there's a different kind of conversation than there are in different parts of the United States. So we're very much trying to keep this, um, really try and keep the podcast based in science, based upon agreed upon science within the scientific community. Also being honest about where there's uncertainty and why uncertainty exists. I mean, uncertainty is not a bad thing and helping people understand how that's all part of the scientific process, I think is important. I mean, I'm not going to spend 20, 30, 40 minutes on it, but you know, spend a couple of minutes sharing about that, I think can change people's, um, people's context and how they hear the, the lens through which they hear what they hear in the news or from their other media outlets. Well, I hope, and again, this is probably something you thought about is that your target audience, you know, you, you want everyone to listen. That's how we podcasters are. You would just, Oh, it's going to catch fire <laughs> and it's going to be the next pod save America. The reality is it's, you know, it is a niche topic, but you have these 10 to 15 minute episodes and I just can see teacher group, like science teachers, you know, who let their students listen. I, you know, it, it get some of those students kind of l- looking at those networks and once a week they listen to your podcast and, you know, th- that's stuff that if red state teachers are getting and they're sharing 10, 15 minutes, you're, you might not get the, you know, NASCAR rally folks listening, but if you get some of the students listening, cause you, you really, it is a really kind of science not kind of, it is a science-based and it's a real nice pulse of information in a quick way. And I think teachers really should just be your core audience. I mean, this is a huge opportunity for just some really quick learning. Doug, I love, I love, I love that comment and that suggestion. It's fantastic. I think we're just starting to dip our toes in the water with that. We would love to get this into classrooms. And I'm thinking about well, what, I mean, is the podcast enough or do there need to be supplementary materials or other other people that have developed those kinds of materials that the podcast can be an entree into? It's, that's a great conversation. And yeah, and if there are any teachers out here or people who work for organizations that represent teachers, would love to connect and talk with you about how what we're doing can be relevant. Is that something that you do with your podcast as well? Some funny you mentioned. I, I have just been blessed with my listeners, and so I have some folks at some universities. I know Kate Bishop Williams at the University of Waterloo. She, she, we started this podcast in the classroom initiative. So I've got, actually I have a couple people, and, and Kurt's on the team too. But there's a small team who listen to my podcast, and then within a week after it, it's published, they have come up with some discussion guides. So questions. And, That's great, right? And I just kind of pinch myself that I have these, and you know, there's two or three other people at MIT who are working on this and you need to do the same thing. And so on my website, it's it's a podcast in a classroom and I've got like seven or eight episodes now where they've developed these discussion guides. And what I need to do a bit more of just like trying to link into the right teacher sources and networks that are going to like take advantage of these. And I, and I think, again, it, it could be sort of a graduate student project for you is that 
they listen to your episodes and they create some discussion guides. And so you do most of the work for the teachers. You really do make it simple for them. Uh, we should team up. We should get the different climate change podcasts that are out there and create a bundle. <laughs> a bundle of curricula. <laughs> you know, and the small team, I, it's all, I, I, that was a great idea. Part of it is just like, you know, I, I'm in awe that they take the time to listen as soon as they can and spend the time to come up with the discussion questions. So for that, I don't necessarily want to throw another pile of podcasts in their laps. I understand. But maybe understand. we collaborate finding key people that kind of do these things. I, I agree because I, I this has kind of come up over and over again. It's like people are not recognizing podcasts is a real incredible source of an educational resource. And I think that some people are only just starting to wake up to that. You know, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about another audience that that we're targeting to is um, because our episodes are short and because they are meant for a, a broad public audience, but of people who are, you know, they're curious, they're interested. Another another group we'd love to tap into is news channels and media outlets who might do something that's very topical or something that's very timely, right? Like maybe there's a hurricane right now, or maybe there's um, a heat wave happening right now. And they mention something about its relationship with climate change then they could point back to this episode for people who want to learn a little bit more about the connection between that thing and climate change. It's it's also meant for that kind of audience. Yeah, I, I just, I'd recommend reaching out to Climate Central. I think they toyed with doing a podcast, but they never did. And that, that I think you're you're MIT. You start from a place I I did not start from. You you guys have obviously a world class reputation. It's easy to sort of make those partnerships, and so Climate Central might be a good starting point for that. So you could be sort of their de facto kind of like pulse of podcast information. That's a great idea. I think that's, I will reach out to Climate Central about that. And because you mentioned it twice, I feel obligated to say something about it. It's, um, it's a blessing and a, a wonderful burden, right? Or I should say a responsibility. I'll put it that way. It's a responsibility to be representing MIT research in this kind of public format. You know, we make sure that the, the people that we interview have a chance to listen to what we produce before we make it live and before we provide a final version, because we want to make sure that we're accurate. I, I'm not I'm not a climate scientist and I am very curious myself. So a lot of the questions I'm asking to the professors are my genuine. I mean, most of them, all of them are my genuine questions. And so it is is a great responsibility to to accurately represent these topics, because if you if you don't, then it become it's it's the it's the word from MIT in many people's minds. And I, I have to be very careful and conscious of that. I guess that's the beauty of being a sole operator <laughs> is that the only person I have to report to is that jackass Doug Parsons. And uh, <laughs> I don't really care what the heck I thinks. Um, another piece of it, too, is that, you know, we MIT is an educational institution. We are not an advocacy group. Right. And our job is not around telling people what to do. That's just not what we do. And so in our episodes, we don't do that. We hope to share information that is proven, that is agreed upon around the scientific community to demystify different topics so that people can make their own decisions that are based on the best available science. Awesome. So we got into some side conversations here, which is always fun anyway. But <laughs> what's up next for you guys? Just give people a primer of, you know, obviously, if they're listening to podcasts, they know how to listen to a podcast. But um, what's up next? Yes. Yeah, so we have uh, we'll be wrapping up this first 
I'm not saying a season, but our first set of episodes, I guess, this May. So we're going to be releasing about eight in total. And then we're going to be getting people's feedback, hearing what they liked, what they didn't like, what they want to see, and planning out our next set of episodes. And we're expecting to release those this fall. Awesome. Okay, last question. If you could recommend one person to come on my podcast, who would it be? <gasps> oh, my gosh. Okay, so there is a great initiative. Well, so it's not American. Is that? That's fine. Oh, that's fine. Okay, so there's a UN group called the UN Resilience Initiative, and they're really thinking about the most vulnerable people around the world and how they're going to be impacted by climate change. They're doing some really remarkable work in getting resiliency and adaptation on the agenda. It's really funny to think about on the global climate change agenda, fighting for resilience and adaptation to be part of the conversation, but you really do. There are so many different competing interests. And they're doing a lot of great work. So there are a number of people from the Red Cross Red Crescent that I could recommend, um, or even some of the specific projects that they've funded and supported around the world. It's 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 pretty inspiring what they're doing. Okay. Well, I guess I'll need to follow up to get a name or something, but uh, sounds like awesome topics. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, Laura, thank you so much. And to my listeners, check. I'll have in my show notes ways to subscribe and all that. But uh, I hope you give – it really is just a great one to listen to when they come out, 10 to 15-minute blocks. You don't have to <laughs> – the long form like me, uh, the, the <laughs> truly committed podcast listeners. But uh, thanks again, Laura, for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Doug. Looking forward to connecting again soon. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Matt and Amy for coming on to talk climate science fiction. Amy has become a pal, and it was great to have her on the podcast again. I really love the opportunities I get to talk with these experts. Literary criticism is not my strong suit, even though my undergrad degree was in creative writing. Can you believe that? As I was editing this episode and listening to Matt and Amy talk about climate fiction, I thought to myself, if someone were asked who was listening to this to select who was the moron in this three-way conversation, it always came back to me. I was the moron. Thank goodness I recruited Amy to help. She made it such a, a richer and more useful conversation. And thanks to Laura for coming on and talking about the Today I Learned Climate podcast. It is really a great new podcast, super high quality, and I bet it will become a standard resource in many classrooms. Check out the links to Matt's paper and to the podcast in my show notes. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps on Facebook and I will approve it. You can just hear some cool insider information on the podcast. I share where I'm going and people post cool stories and other things that they're doing. There have been some great conversations in there. And I'm also on Instagram at America underscore adapts, Twitter at USA adapts. Someone took America adapts at some point. Check those out. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for guests, let me know. It is the highlight of my week. I hear from people all over the world, and I love hearing from you, and they tell me why they listen, or they give me recommendations for guests. It's such a cool thing. I'm doing this Letters from Adapter series, so if you have something you want me to read on the podcast, send me a note. My email is at my email is americadapts at gmail.com. Don't forget the website, americadapts.org. All the information is in my show notes. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.